0: This is Swordplay, and I'm Nick Perez. Alex, the rankings are out, and the top-selling Bible translation is the NIV.
1: The NIV? Wow. Uh, Zondervan must be really raking in the money.
0: Well, there goes our Zondervan sponsorship. Oh, well for that. (laughs) Well, folks, this is Swordplay, and we are your hosts. I'm Nick Perez, Preaching Minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California, and host of the Live from the Pulpit podcast.
1: And I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I also am host of the Carooks of the Canon podcast. Uh, those are quite old, uh, but still good, so feel free to take a listen if you're interested.
0: On this episode of Swordplay, the book of Jude. And if you haven't already, grab your Bible and turn over to the back of the book, the book of Revelation, and just start turning left one book until you hit the book of Jude, just a short little postcard in the New Testament. You're going to want to read that. should take you all of five minutes, and then maybe read it again, and then, um, yeah, come back to the program, because we're talking about it in this episode.
1: Absolutely, and you know, Nick, one of the things I like doing best when I read through a book is I like to just have a pencil and a paper so that I can write out any question that I have and Uh, no question is off limits nothing's too simple or complicated I just start listing them out so that by the end of the letter I have uh, a good set of questions and it gets my mind thinking in a more investigative and inquisitive manner I don't know if do you have any special techniques you like to use
0: that's as good a one as any Um, can't get any better than a blank piece of paper and a pencil or pen and just going at the text with uh, and, and that's the thing about the scriptures, is it'll hold up to any question we ask. It's It's been here longer than anybody, and it'll still be here when we're long gone. So speaking of questions, I know we've got a lot of them, so we might as well get to the program uh, schedule. Okay. And might as well start with a big one. Who is Jude?
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, well, Nick, when I was going through the letter, I was thinking about some of the notes that I've come across in the past and basically where I'm at with this is uh, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, although he lists himself as the brother of James, and you open up a whole other can of worms with which James is he talking about, and so what's your take on that?
0: Yeah, I'm persuaded. That's a, I'm, I'm where you're at, half-brother of Jesus. Even though he introduces himself in the first verse as a servant of Jesus Christ, um, I think that's just part of part of the humility of being one of the half-brothers who, according to John, they didn't believe in him, but apparently James, who wrote an epistle of the New Testament, I'm persuaded he wrote the book of James, was a half-brother of Jesus, and so is Jude, short for Judas, and his name means praise, by the way.
1: Oh, wow, I did not know that. Yeah, it's interesting thinking how he references James as being the touch point for who he is, and like you said, just being a humble servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, Now this James, being the brother of Jesus, would correspond to the James of the book of Acts. After James, the brother of John, is put to death with the sword, you have another James popping up, who's called the Lord's brother, and he ends up being a prominent figure, not only at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, I believe, but also uh, a prominent figure in Jerusalem, in the Church of Jerusalem itself, and he pops back up as this this contact, this touchpoint for the Apostle Paul when he comes back to Jerusalem after his missionary journeys. Right. Any other thoughts on that?
0: Um, no, let's move on to recipients. we got the author. How about, to whom did Jude write? It's a
1: good question. What do you think?
0: It's... <laughs> it's um, We know the christians he says in the first verse to those who are called beloved in god the father and kept for jesus christ that's language that is indicative of christians um where when at what capacity that's anybody's guess you have one
1: yeah i think that maybe you have a church with mostly jewish christians that would be just my guess because of the several Old Testament references being made. But mm-hmm. having said that, that's not for sure. You know, I, I think it would be assumed that Gentile Christians are going to come into the church, they're going to learn the scriptures, they're going to become familiar with these stories as well. But I still, combined with the reference to the brother of James, James being a big leader in the church of Jerusalem, I still think this is probably mostly like a, a, G- a Jewish Christian audience here. What do you think?
0: That makes sense, yeah. Um, well, uh, let's dig a little deeper into the text, I suppose, and and talk about the problem that is that has arisen among these Christians to whom Jude is writing. Um, we're told in verse four that certain people have crept in unnoticed, uh, unnoticed too long ago were designated for the condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And deny our only master and lord jesus christ i like to call these guys ungodly creeps all right yeah um,
1: the creepers
0: yeah so um who are they and how did they creep in kind of unnoticed undetected if they're doing all this sinful stuff
1: you know that's always been a head scratcher for me i'm just wondering uh how deceptive how manipulative and how, how good at tricking people are these people? Be- because, I mean, you don't just walk into a church and say, hey, who wants to uh, rush headlong with me into all these sins and uh, you know, all of this uh, evil stuff, right? Nobody does that. That wouldn't work. It has to be more uh, camouflaged than that, thinking of, you know, the ways of of the devil. He, he When he lies, he speaks his native language, and he's the original, you know, rebel from Genesis 3. So... I don't know. I, I think they must have come in under false pretenses. I don't think we have a thing where you, you're in the church and you just get drawn away. I think there is an audience like that in the letter. But I think these specific guys, these guys came in with a, with a plan and uh, and they've been executing this plan. I mean, this is guerrilla warfare on the darkness side infiltrating mm-hmm. the light. What do you think?
0: No, that, that's that's good stuff. Um, Jude will use fifteen more phrases in addition to what we see here, calling them ungodly creeps. Um, he'll call that. He'll say they're like Cain, who killed his brother Abel. Like they're, they're like Balaam because of uh, his greed and leading the children of God in rebellion. They're like Korah, who was straight up rebellion. Um, Hidden reefs that they're fearless. No fear of reprieve from church or God. How how prideful do you have to be for that? Self-indulgent shepherds. So it could be a leadership thing here. Waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, wandering stars, grumblers, malcontents, selfish, sinful desires, loud and proud, showing favoritism. That's, <laughs> that is a laundry list of condemnation that, that Jude is is highlighting concerning these ungodly creeps.
1: What's especially frightening is exactly what you mentioned, the possibility of these guys being in the position of, of shepherd, of oh, a yeah. pastor. I mean, how terrifying would that be? That would be intimidating as a regular member of a congregation to think about and to entertain the idea that your leaders are way off the deep end and they are just drowning in their own sin and filth. And this is uh, definitely with the element of, I think, deception, though, because even with Cain, Balaam, Korah, um, Cain, there's an element of deception, right? He tells his brother, let's go, I want to talk to you out in the field, but then he kills him. (laughs) So uh, Balaam, there's deception. He's the one who couldn't verbally curse Israel, and so he counsels Bala, king of Moab, to put all these stumbling blocks in traps in Israel's way and Korah there's still deception you know it was outright rebellion but he's got to round up his troops uh in secret and in the whispers and in the background so that he can rise up and execute his his coup and so I think that goes along with the metaphors used right afterwards they're hidden reefs right you you don't see it on the surface but they're under there and they're waiting to shipwreck uh, anyone who would come in contact with him. So lots of deception. Very scary to think about this kind of deception getting into the leadership. And it reminds me a little bit even of uh, Acts chapter 20 when the Apostle Paul calls the elders of Ephesus to the island of Miletus. And in part of that speech, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, he says, I know that uh, wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, and some will rise. From among your own number. Right. And so that could be indicative of wolves rising up within the eldership itself. So scary stuff, scary stuff. Definitely. This is why Jude says, uh, I couldn't just write you a letter of encouragement. That's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But he says, I had to write so that you would defend the faith. Now, Nick, this is a little tricky. What do you think he means when he says the faith?
0: Yeah, we're, so we're now we're dealing with purpose. Um, why Jude is writing the letter in the first place, um, kind of an interesting way that he does this is, I wanted to write about this, but I need to write about that. Wanted to write about the common salvation, but I have to write to you about contending for the faith. Um, the faith, at least as I've read and heard about it, typically is has to do with... One school of thought is it has to do with the the pattern and everything in Christianity that has to do with um, Christ and salvation and how one becomes a Christian and things like that. Um, however, it's interesting because Jude, right there in verse three, as he says, you know, I, I'm I'm compelled to write to you about. Contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, there's another school of thought that has to do with uh, the faith being just uh, the the gospel elements that are essential and vital for coming to know Christ. Not not everything involved with being a Christian as far as as far as church practice and worship, but more regarding the core elements of the gospel, and and you know it's it's interesting. People use this verse, Jude verse three, in order to say, well, you know, see, we we have the whole Bible, but if, depending upon when you when you put Jude, the date of Jude when he wrote this, you still have John who hasn't written what he's written yet. So, I'm disinclined to say that Jude is saying all of the system of Christianity, and more inclined to see here him talking about the gospel principles and that that's what you're supposed to go after. And that helps, and I, and I lean toward that because what you see in other writings, like what John writes in 1st first, first and 2nd John, and 3rd John as well, um, about, you know, that there are vital core elements of the gospel that are non-negotiable. Uh, I don't know, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think I'm tracking with you. I mean, obviously, uh, the faith is not going to be divorced from the object of faith being Jesus Christ. And right. so I agree with the core elements of the gospel needing to be present in what we call the faith. Um, so I'm, I'm with you on that. And it, here's what I think. When we look at the letters, all of the epistles, right? And, and you could even throw in the gospels because they have an audience in mind and a specific purpose in mind. But when you look at these letters... I do not find any one book or one passage that just lays out for you like here is the faith, boom, 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 right? Right. So the way I see it is, what we have is a lot of pictures that we put together as a cam of as as a um, collage, and that's what we call our New Testament. And from the collage, we try our best to repaint what is the faith. So in other words. Um, we make the best uh, lesson or the best set of, of doctrines that would be considered the faith based off of what we have, but it's not just as easy as reading a passage because you have to decipher, like, okay, when the churches are having problems and an apostle or, um, or somebody writes a letter, then they are using principles from the faith to answer their problems, And so we have to, like, reverse engineer it. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, definitely an important passage. Definitely shows you that there is something called the faith, but it's not as cut and dry as to, like, listing out what's the faith, what's the non-compromising elements, uh, what is clearly uh, a part of our Christian foundation and trust in Jesus Christ.
0: And, and Jude takes for granted. They would have known exactly what he's talking about with that. Absolutely. Uh, with with the faith. Here's uh, a related question. How in the world do you contend for the faith?
1: Oh. <laughs> uh, well, it's my understanding that you just... Uh, find a brother you disagree with. Right. You uh, yell at him, make fun of him, mm-hmm. and uh, berate him, and then you kick him out of the church.
0: That makes sense to me. All right, next question. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. But but that is how we've treated this, this verse for
1: contending for the faith. Absolutely. Sometimes it has become somewhat of a hammer that we use to bludgeon our uh, beloved brethren as opposed to... Um, as opposed to the counseling uh, voice of the Lord, which wants to keep people in the church and to persuade people's hearts to repentance.
0: There is, a, there is a bit of this word contend that does have to do with striving or fighting, but whatever intense effort that we exert on behalf of the faith... It must not be directed at our brethren it's directed here it's directed toward the ungodly creeps who are perverting the grace of god and are steeped in sin and are trying to get others to follow after them so um it's not to be contentious with your brethren for the faith but to certainly fight against the uh the the serious erroneous practices and beliefs of of those who would drag a church onto a pathway to hell.
1: But we do acknowledge the complexity here. I mean, it's a complex situation, which is why Jude has to write them this letter, because these creeps have worked themselves in, they have been very successfully deceitful, and they are seen as leaders and brothers in the church. and so here you are having to come and reveal who they really are so that action can be taken. So uh, I, I I understand the complexity of it.
0: yeah and we should note to jump to the end of the book that there Jude does seem to temper this to some degree because he talks about, Um, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 21, having mercy on those who doubt, verse 22, save others by snatching them out of the fire, um, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by uh, the flesh. So so this is tempered, the the contending for the faith and exerting that intense effort for the faith is tempered with, Yeah, but you're still supposed to have a heart of compassion and mercy for people. Don't lose sight of the fact that they still are people with a soul um, that that is in need of salvation.
1: Yeah, I I agree for sure. You know, Nick, as we work our way through the letter and we get more in-depth into who these people are that they need to contend with, um, they did mention... They are like Cain. They are like Balaam. They are like Korah. Now, I, I mentioned how there's an element of deception there, but is there anything else that you see with those three characters that are specifically drawn out?
0: Each of them, ha- each of them is um, connected to rebellion. They are uh, all three of them in rebellion to God. Uh, in their various places. Cain, all the way back at the beginning. Balaam's story is in uh, the book of Numbers, as well as Korah and and the rebellion that he led. And I think that's those three are highlighted and used as case studies in order to make a comparison between them and the ungodly creeps who have come in among the
1: church. Um, right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think that not only uh, do you have this element of rebellion, but just this uh, this idea of, like, when you look back on those stories, it's clear, it's crystal clear, it's twenty twenty vision, right, hindsight, that these guys were in the wrong, that they were clearly uh, arrogant and uh, maybe self-deceived de- uh, and also deceiving others. So uh, Jude's audience, they're not looking back in hindsight anymore. They're in the picture. They're in the story as it's unfolding. And it's like Jude is saying, How do you want this story to end? How do you want this to play out? Do you want it to be another footnote of rebellion like Cain and Balaam and Korah? Or do you want to go down like uh the the heroes of the stories, you know, the the leaders, the unwavering, uh faithful men of old, the patriarchs, who are not like their current leaders, who are the uh, selfish shepherds feeding themselves and reveling in the, in the daylight at their love feasts.
0: Well, let's, uh, let's dig a bit deeper here um, and, and look at a specific phrase that's used here in verse 7, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding cities. Um, that likewise indulged in fornication and pursuit of natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So the question that is brought up from time to time has to do with that phrase, eternal fire, um, and whether or not it means forever since Sodom and Gomorrah aren't burning anymore. Should we understand that eternal fire and punishment by eternal fire as annihilation? What say you, Alex?
1: This is an excellent question and uh, can often become uh, contentious. So (laughs) (laughs) as we look at this, I think that there are multiple things on the table here. There's good arguments to be made for a couple of sides. You have the side, like you said, that argues for annihilation. City of Sodom and Gomorrah, not still on fire, but it is destroyed with eternal fire. So it's a statement of qualitative destruction, right? Uh, right? That's somewhat ironic, but it is the idea that they were completely and fully uh judged with god's fire and this was a very literal event as as i understand it and then you got the other side of the table that says well no um eternal fire here maybe is bringing in the spiritual side of it the afterlife the uh, ultimate judgment in the end how these people who were judged with uh, fire on earth will also be judged with fire in eternity at the resurrection. And so that's sort of how you stretch that argument back into it, which I think is still possibly on the table. But me personally, I would lean towards this speaking more of an annihilation instance. What do you think?
0: I hear what you're saying, um, especially about the, the word eternal itself um, has... Both the qualitative nature to it, as well as the quantitative nature to it, and and um, camps, those two camps um, tend to hyper focus on either one or the other of those. Um, as I approach that word eternal, I I see both elements involved. There is a qualitative, in other words, um, what's it like, and how long is it going to last? Okay, that's qualitative and quantitative respectively. What is it like, and how long is it going to last? Sure, and the thing that keeps coming back to me is that eternal fire and the punishment um, that that brings is uh, stands in contrast with eternal life. And in fact, in Jude, over in verse 21, he talks about waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So whatever we say about eternal fire should be true about eternal life as well. as far as the duration of it, uh, the quality of course is going to be different because fire is different than life, all right. Punishment is different than reward. So uh, I think based on that, where I'm at with it is um, that yes, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were wiped from the map, but the punishment of the the punishment wasn't on the buildings and and the roads of Sodom and Gomorrah was upon the people and what they did and their punishment ha- is is ongoing because it's 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 eternal fire so that's that's where i fall with that
1: yeah no i definitely hear you and uh i've seen it both ways i mean yeah. with with a lot of words you can uh establish a given meaning for a word and say that it's going to mean this in every context uh But then you bring in other arguments to say how a given word actually doesn't mean the same thing in every context, and it's uh, context-driven, right? And so then you get into the uh, back-and-forth debating of, well, what does the context support? Does the context support a meaning of the word eternal being both qualitative and quantitative in every instance, or is it uh, either or, uh, and or, depending on the the context that's being referenced, and that's where uh, that's why it's to me. There's still multiple options on the table. It can get it can get a little dicey, and so there's not a clear answer for me on this.
0: Well, since we solved that old chestnut, <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> let's uh, let's move on to another little tangled mess here concerning the archangel Michael and the body of Moses. This is verse nine. Um, and it's part of a larger discussion that Jude is is presenting here concerning what apparently some of these ungodly creeps were doing, which they were blaspheming angels or um, angelic beings and rejecting their authority. And, and anyway, what Jude writes here in verse 9 is, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, why in the world did the devil want Moses' body? And related to that, what in the world is Jude alluding to here?
1: Wow. Well, those are both very good questions. And I think even some of the answers that I would like to go into, uh, we just wouldn't really have time to flesh them out. And so I would just say this for our listeners Um, one of the answers. Uh, that I'd hint at here, has to do with a, a something called the Divine Council Worldview. Mm. And it's a supernatural um, worldview that uh, is, is well uh, fleshed out um, in the uh, text of the ancient Near East and the Second Temple uh, literature. So just Google Divine Council Worldview and you should find enough links to get acquainted with what's being referenced there. But all that to say that The whole angelic majesties thing, uh, I think that what's going on here is the angelic majesties are referring to a certain uh, heavenly hierarchy and that you must show respect to that heavenly hierarchy. Uh, This has nothing to do with worship. This just has to do with uh, not railing uh, judgments and insults and revilings against these angelic majesties uh, because even the archangel Michael does not do such a thing. In the face of the devil, and so, to me, you know, should we sing these these songs that talk about beating up the devil or uh, telling the devil to go sit on a tack? <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> like, uh, Not even Michael would sing that song. <laughs> yeah, right. Not even the archangel Michael would would do such a thing. So, uh, huh. but again, in their context, uh, it's it's intentional. There's a certain worldview that goes with it, and it displays a certain degree of arrogance. And so um, that that's where I think I'll leave that. But as far as the body goes, why does the devil want the body of Moses? This is super weird, right? But here's, here's where I'm tracking on this, and I'm not going to give a full answer because I don't have one. However, hmm. the body of Moses, we know while he was alive, was being transfigured because of the glowing, the shiny... Uh, Aura which he would have after coming down from the mountain and how that would fade over time and he would go back up and like be recharged. Uh, It's very strange, but you don't have this transfiguration language until you see Jesus uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is uh, it's Mount Hermon is is probably just north of Caesarea Philippi where he's at, and it's on this mountain that he's transfigured and he's glowing and he's shiny and guess who's next to him in the in the vision? Moses and Elijah. So. I think uh, the the devil wanted something with that transfigured body. Now, I'm going to stay away from the idea that it's connected to any kind of uh, sexual stuff, as mentioned earlier, because I just think that's a little weird. Uh, But uh, (laughs) I'm going to say that the devil wanted it for something. Maybe he wanted to make the body into an idol. Maybe he wanted to use the body as a vessel for uh, some sort of evil uh, demonic spirit i i have no idea maybe the devil is like a crazy mad scientist and uh he's he's responsible for inserting um, all kinds of crazy things into the world and so i don't know what do you think nick um
0: i'm still wigging out over we're teaching kids to sing run right over the devil um <laughs> <laughs> there is an oral tradition there's apocryphal literature that does speak of a struggle between Moses and the devil over the body of Moses. Uh, What I found is Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Didymus of Alexandria, they all agree Jude is quoting from this apocryphal writing called Assumptions of Moses. Right, right. And there's only a few small portions of that that continue to today. Um, And that, I believe, we're going to talk about in a little bit about Jude quoting from and referencing apocryphal writing is going to be our tough text. Sure, sure. Um, so I'll leave that off for then.
1: Because we don't but, have the assumption of Moses' writings, right? Like we don't have the full extent, like copy, that goes through this scenario of Michael and uh, right. the devil fighting.
0: Right. All I want to say is is that Jude uses this particular example, again, like I was saying, in order to combat the arrogant views and the arrogant practices of these ungodly creeps. He says in verse 10, These men revile the things which they don't understand. Um, so they're unreasoning animals and are themselves destroyed. So um, you're, you're exactly on point. This is, this is very serious stuff. Um, and, and to go around claiming something that isn't properly ours is a grievous thing. Um, and again, Michael the Archangel, he wouldn't even pronounce this judgment. It's all it, he, he goes right back to the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. Right, um, right. And, and related to this, there are, and maybe here's a bit of modern application for today, there are televangelists. Jesse Duplantis is one of them. Um, I think you get a bit of it with like John Hagee guys like this who are on daystar television and tbn and stuff like that who will come on tv and tell you you just got to rebuke the devil you know you got to get uh you got to say stuff to the devil and you know i i rebuke the devil and all that um do they know what they're doing and they're (laughs) teaching this stuff like it's like, it's it's handed down from Mount Sinai, and yet here we are with Moses, who was on Mount Sinai, and the devil is wagering for the body against Michael the archangel. No, Michael the archangel wouldn't even do
1: that. He wouldn't even, I rebuke you. He did not do that. He says, the Lord rebuke you. So, Well, think about yeah. this. This just came to mind, right? So I don't know if it's completely related, but right. what about when Paul says he handed over one of the Christians to the devil so that he would be taught not to blaspheme? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I don't know if the blasphemy being referenced there is is in reference to angelic majesties like we have here. But again, the devil has a certain authority and he has a certain role uh, in the heavenly places. And if you don't know anything about that, or whether, even if you do, uh, you don't you don't start blasting out against all these unseen beings. And uh, w- when it's just it's arrogant, you don't know.
0: There's a lot of bad theology out there, a lot of bad application of stuff, and and so I, I believe Jude speaks a word into that, and um, yeah, we need to be careful with the stuff that we hear, and and really allow Scripture to dictate what it is we do and what we practice. So
1: absolutely, and maybe it has to do with this uh, sometimes dualistic view that we have of the devil, like the devil is the god of all evil, right? It's like he put him almost as as evil as God is good in this sort of dualistic framework when the devil isn't the only enemy out there. I mean, there are other unseen enemies, uh, the present darkness, the rulers, authorities, dominions, the thrones, the, the war that's not with flesh and blood. There are other things out there, and the devil, the devil is a significant you know, rebel player in the scheme of things. But he's not the only one. And there's a lot more going on than we realize. Both stuff that we can't know because we haven't been told, but also a lot of stuff that we have been told, we just aren't familiar with. So I'll leave it at that.
0: It's a good place to leave it. So let's move on and really get down into the weeds here. And let's back up to verse 5. Where Jude says, now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, this is the uh, New American Standard, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now mine, my English Standard Version, reads very similar, except um, instead of saying the Lord, mine says Jesus. (laughs) And this is what is called in the big leagues... A textual variant um, and and there are several um, textual variants here um, is it Jesus is it Lord is it the Lord is it um, uh, something else is the wording switched up and the answer to all those questions is yes <laughs> <laughs> um, Alex what what's your take on this
1: so I think that there is no discrepancy here that when it says the Lord and when it says Jesus that where the, the early Christians are coming from is I believe uh, that they believed uh, and I also believe it As so that was a confusing way to word it but anyway that Jesus before his incarnate form you know, before he was baby Jesus uh, son of Mary he existed, right? he was in the beginning with God and he was God, John one one. right? So... What is his role pre, you know, pre-Mary and Joseph? And so the idea is that he has a role. He is existent in the Old Testament. He's not called Jesus in the Old Testament because, right, that's his human name that he receives. Right. But his existence in the Old Testament is uh, often described and equated to what's called the angel of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Now, in Judaism, right, and so in in a non-Christian context... Uh, Judaism held tightly to a doctrine called the two powers in heaven doctrine. And this was the idea that there are two Yahwehs. That there, there's uh, the v- invisible Yahweh which sits in his throne on heaven. And then there's the visible Yahweh which comes down and actually interacts with people as the angel of the Lord. This is the Yahweh that uh, Moses eats with and talks to before Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. This is the This is the Yahweh that Joshua bows down and, and worships uh, as the commander of the hosts of heaven. Uh, the This is the the Yahweh that is said to have appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And this, I believe, is also the visible Yahweh that appeared as the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night as a guide and protector over Israel after rescuing them from Egyptian slavery. And that doctrine, the two powers in heaven doctrine, did not disappear from Judaism until Christianity came along. So it was after the first century that Judaism began to reject the two powers doctrine because uh, Christians were saying that this is Jesus. Jesus is the the visible Yahweh. He's the angel of the Lord. And Jews who were unbelieving in Jesus as the Christ uh, began to see that connection, and reject the entire two powers doctrine. So that's that's what I think about that. What do you think, Nick?
0: So that deals with the theological, Christological, um, and even the theophany stuff of it. Um, as we get down—I I knew this was going to be the question today, so I once again pulled out my Greek apparatus. And— uh, <laughs> What I found is that when it comes to what Jude wrote here, there's there's a Latin tradition, so we're talking about Vulgate stuff, there's a Syriac tradition. As far as the manuscripts go, that were written, written way back when, and really it's, it's kind of, uh, while some have stronger traditions than others, like the Jesus and the Lord traditions obviously have stronger traditions than some of the other textual variants, um, what it comes down to is whether it's Jesus or the Lord, I think Jude would say yes, and he did have this, uh, this pre-incarnate existence, and he does show up in the Old Testament. So um, six one, half dozen of the other, I think is what it shakes down to, and I'm sure there are guys who are experts in the languages who are barking at me right now that's fine (laughs) that's fine i'm no expert and so uh and i think we're free to disagree on that the the bottom line is jude had no problem with seeing the lord uh the lord jesus even in the old testament
1: definitely definitely now nick as long as we're throwing out uh plenty of questions here that we can't answer how about we look at verse 20 when he says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So when he says praying in the Holy Spirit, Nick, I've always wondered, what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? What do you think?
0: It's so easy. Um, (laughs) No, it's, look, it's a good question. I believe it's, Um, excuse me, it's it's intended to be a phrase that stands in opposition to how the ungodly creeps were praying. They were, as he says elsewhere in the letter, devoid of the Spirit of God. So it could be, make sure that your requests are in conformity with divine utterance, in other words, the word that the Holy Spirit inspired. I came across, excuse me, a quote uh, that says, there is no prayer without the Spirit, and I think that's um, we're reminded of that in Paul in Romans chapter 8, where the Spirit comes and he helps us in our weakness, and he's talking specifically about prayer there. Um, I, I do find it interesting, I know we typically think of prayer as kind of an individual thing, and we're supposed to do that, but Jude writes to the church at large, as, as a whole, and I think he's inviting these Christians to come together and to practice praying together. That's a lost art
1: yes, for yes. the
0: church today. We we pray on our own, but we don't spend that much time praying together. And um, back in 1994, someone brought this quote to me one day. Uh, in 1994, at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures, um, Leonard Allen said this. He says, "I have learned." also, that I do not maintain the disciplines of prayer adequately by myself, and that I must pray regularly with others." And, man, if there's a message that Jude is communicating to us today, it's, you, you guys pray individually, yes, but get together and pray, and there's there's a, a power there that we have yet to truly tap into.
1: I totally agree, Nick. Um... I definitely, like many Christians, feel like prayer is the one area of spiritual discipline that I could always improve upon. That not just in my individual life, but like you said, with the community, with our our brothers and sisters. And one of the uh, traditions that we have at our congregation is uh, most weeks after church, we split up into men and women. And the men go to one part of our house, uh, and the women go to another part. And we just spend time in prayer. We See, go around in a circle, see what's on each other's heart. It's a time of thanksgiving. It's a time of confession. Uh, It's a time of just drawing near to God and being that um, intercessor for one another. But of course, we know that we aren't the intercessor. We bring our prayers to the great intercessor, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And I think the reference here, praying in the Holy Spirit, might be, in contrast to, like you said, to the uh, to the creeps at this uh, that, have, that are deceiving the congregation here, and when it talks about their reviling angelic majesties, it's clear that they do not have a respect, maybe not an even a proper understanding of how uh, the heavenly places work. And what we're doing is, we're not blasting out uh, condemnations against heavenly beings. We are instead humbly bringing our requests to the Holy Spirit, who knows our mind, knows the mind of God, and uh, is able to uh, bring our requests before the Lord with uh, groanings too deep for words, as Paul would say. What do you think?
0: No, that, that makes absolute sense. And I love the that, that beautiful practice that you guys uh, have there uh, in the church that, that you're working to practice. Um, so that's Uh, That's good stuff, good stuff. Um, And I think that brings us to our tough text text. for the day. Tough text. It's verses uh, 14 and 15, and where it appears that Jude is quoting from the book of Enoch, at least he's quoting Enoch himself, who is prophesying as a seventh from Adam, concerning these ungodly creeps. And the quotation is, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So uh, first, is Jude quoting from the Book of Enoch, and second, why in the world is Jude, this is kind of the second time he's done this in this epistle, why is he quoting from or referencing these apocryphal writings?
1: Well, uh, I think that it would be good to just take a minute to talk about the Book of Enoch so I'll lay my cards out on the table, right? So I've you can read the Book of Enoch today. I've read it. I've read it a few times. There's 1st and 2nd Enoch. And so 1st Enoch is what's being quoted here in the letter of Jude. Um, the Book of Enoch, if you want to read it, the uh, best, most up-to-date translation is from uh, a, a book series called Hermaniah. It's a commentary series. So if you want to Google Hermaniah, Book of Enoch that'll be the best most recent translation it incorporates all of the dead sea scrolls and available fragments that we have for the letter um so the book of enoch is found in the dead sea scrolls it it was very popular in the second temple era Um, it's not in our canon but it is in the ethiopian bible and so their canon has always kept the book of enoch but i would say it's not just quoted here in jude i think it's strongly alluded In Jude and in first and second Peter so Mm -hmm. I think everybody should at least read the book of first Enoch um, whether you think it's uh, interesting or not or authoritative or not simply because um, it's good to read these things it's good to see what are people uh, thinking about and digesting at the time of of Christ and leading up to the time of Christ so here's here's what I think the book of Enoch mainly is about retelling the uh, supernatural story, the supernatural interpretation of Genesis chapter 6, where it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men, uh, and they came down, took them as wives, had children with them. These were giants of old. They were on the earth before and after the flood. Um, in the Septuagint, that Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, uh, it says the angels of God saw that the, sons, the daughters of men were beautiful, and, um, So the book of Enoch is about angelic beings coming down from heaven in rebellion to God, leaving their proper abode, uh, having children with human women. And so these are going to be half-angel, half-human creations. And that those are the giants of old. That's the origin story of giants in the Old Testament and giant clans. And there are all kinds of words in the Old Testament for giants uh, other than the word giant. And so... The uh, judgment is brought upon those angels for the rebellion. Uh, God brings the flood upon the world to wash away uh, the giants at that time, and also to bind up and imprison the angels who came down and created those giants. So that story, in great detail, is what the book of Enoch is about. And that's why I say it's strongly alluded to in the book of Jude, because verse 6 says, there were angels who did not keep their own domain, abandoned their proper abode, and then that's connected to the sexual immorality of verse 7 for Sodom and Gomorrah, saying how Sodom and Gomorrah also committed sexual immorality. So uh, I think there's like a hundred more things I would want to say about this, but I'll I'll just leave it at that. What are your thoughts, Nick?
0: I'm not as well-versed in um, the Book of Enoch as you are. Um, How I treat these... Allusions or references to um, uh, these apocryphal writings in Jude is I treat him kind of like Paul when he quotes from uh, secular writers of his day. Sure, sure. Um, Acts chapter 17 is one example of this. Um, verse 28 In him we live, move, and have our being. He's quoting Epimenides there of Crete. And then he quotes again, even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. That's a poem from uh, Erratus. And then he does the same thing over in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. That's from a comedy by Meander. Right, right. And so I'm, I'm inclined just to see. Paul isn't saying those guys are inspired, but he is latching on to a contemporary writing in which there appears to be some truth here that um, that is universally known. So what Jude is doing is he latches on to these what would have been, apparently, well-known stories, and uses them in order to uh, make a point, kind of like what Paul does with those secular writers.
1: You know, I, I think of it very similar. Uh, I don't think the Book of Enoch... Uh, is divinely inspired however you want to put that that's not quite an easy term to, to define as well but putting that aside um, there is this story there is this truth that Jude latches onto he uses it to uh, teach and drive home the point about contending for the faith against these creeps and the dangers of sexual morality. and I think that, uh, that while the book of Enoch may not Deserve a place in the canon or as inspired by God. I think the truth in Enoch uh, about the story being told needs to be taken seriously because it is so strongly alluded to in Jude and in First and Second Peter and also I would I would put forth to you many other letters in the New Testament. And once you go down that view and you start fleshing out. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the Divine Council worldview, Old Testament stuff starts coming to life as well. But again, I I will leave that for another podcast, another time. So Nick, what are you think the the main, some of the main applications or takeaways for you today?
0: Well, I I think I'm going to, and we've kind of wove some of that in as we were going along. I'm going to just, my final thoughts are going to be around verses 24 and 25 which are a doxology as Judas closing. He says, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. That's past, present, future, by the way. Um, God is so powerful that he can keep us from stumbling, and he can present us uh, blameless before him. I think that's a powerful message, not only for the audience of Jude's Day, but for us today, uh, for us as Christians. And because of that, yeah, God should get all the glory and the majesty and the dominion and the authority forever and ever, uh, past, present, future, now and forevermore. Um, I, I believe that sometimes we just gotta stand back in reverential awe of what God has done, is doing and will do. And, and maybe that's the best application point that, that we can make.
1: I really like that. I uh, think that it's the cherry on top, right? It's, it's, you can dive into the woods and try to figure out all these tough questions, but at the end of the day, you take a step back, you look at the forest, and uh, you can end with uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, to him be that glory, majesty, dominion, and authority forever and ever. We can say amen to that for sure. Definitely, I think my takeaway for today, uh, something I noticed is just this constant pervasive danger of sexual immorality. Verse 6, with the angels. Verse 7, Sodom, Gomorrah. Verse 8, defiling the flesh. Those are stated, implied. You have this verse 4, licentiousness. Verse 5, Israel's punishment uh, that might be connected to Balaam and the sin of uh, Baal at Peor. Verse 16 and 18, about lust. Verse 23, about the garment polluted by the flesh. I mean, it's a short letter, but here you have a good seven to eight references talking about the danger of sexual immorality. In in a visually charged atmosphere that we live in today, this is a needed message. We need to take serious the danger of sexual immorality, and we need to speak against the casualness in which it's taken in our culture today.
0: Well said, and I think that's going to do it for me.
1: I think that's good for me, too. Uh, Thanks, Nick. Wow, this was a tough one. Yeah, definitely. Well, I guess we'll uh, see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Swordplay.